Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. You're listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Our guest in this episode is John Rabin, who currently serves as the FEMA Assistant Administrator for Response, where he is responsible for the delivery of a coordinated federal emergency management response to state, local, tribal, and territorial communities that have been impacted by natural disasters, acts of terrorism, or other emergencies. This includes the leadership and management of the Urban Search and Rescue System, Disaster Emergency Communications, the National Response Coordination Center, and numerous national planning, warning, and reporting organizations. He was on the ground in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands for Hurricanes Irma and Maria, leading the region in the complex life-saving and life-sustaining operations. Mr. Rabin also served as Deputy Assistant Administrator for National Preparedness. In this role, he led the day-to-day operations that provided the guidance, training, exercises, and programs to prepare the nation to prevent, protect from, respond to, and recover from all hazards. A volunteer firefighter and EMT, he is also a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and the Executive Leaders Program at the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security. John, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Patty. I'm very excited to be here. So I'd like to start the conversation by clearly defining crisis leadership from your perspective, because with FEMA, management is obviously a top priority. What's your functional definition of a crisis, and what do you view as the most important traits and attributes that a senior or executive leader must display during a crisis? So, Patty, most of our operations at FEMA really come from some predictability and a sense of order. We go to a lot of tornadoes and hurricanes and other natural disasters and disasters that sometimes we didn't even participate, but they're all fairly predictable the way that we do our operations. What happens when they stop becoming predictable is when they get complicated. And for us, the way that I like to sort of view the crisis side of this is crisis is what happens when these operations get complex and they get a little bit chaotic and we lose that predictability aspect of all this stuff. For us, that means there's a lot of competing priorities where normally there could be there could be some priorities that we know what's going to happen. There's going to be some food and water challenges. But when you get a situation where you've got a lot of competing priorities, where you've got to provide food and water for you know tens of thousands of people or provide power for hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, that becomes a bit of a challenge. And then those interdependencies, when those interdependencies come up, that becomes even more complex and more chaotic when you need power to run water systems or you need power to open supermarkets and you need generators and fuel for generators 
all those things to run credit card machines so people can buy food, uh, all that sort of complexity and that chaos, so to speak, that all leads to becoming when you get into sort of a crisis mode. In a sense, it's almost like when it becomes a little bit overwhelming. Complicated, we can do complicated and we can do lots of different ways of doing business. But when it gets really complex is when we start getting into some crisis. And so what are the traits and attributes that you look for in a leader in that sort of environment? Yeah, so a, a lot of the traits that you need as a leader in those crisis incidents really are ones that you build up over time. And a couple of them that I'll share with you, one is you've got to know yourself. You have to know your strengths. You have to know your weaknesses. You have to know what your role is in the crisis. And most importantly, what your role is not. There's going to be so much to do. You want to make sure that you understand what you need to do and what you don't need to do. I would also say a couple more attributes are you've, you've got to be confident. Uh, these are the situations where the people that work for you, the people that you're going to come across, whether in our case, they're state and local partners or tribes or territorial partners or survivors, they're going to look to you to be in charge and to help them. And that requires you to be confident in the things that you say, confident in the way that you walk into a space, just confidence in general. You've got to get comfortable with empowerment. There is so much going on that you're never going to be able to do it all. You've got to be comfortable empowering your people to, to do what they need to do to be successful. You've got to be decisive. Um, there's going to be a tremendous amount of decisions that you're going to need to make. You want to be decisive about them. You want to make sure that you avoid micromanagement. You want to accept responsibility for the decisions you make. And you need to be able to be adaptable. You're going to make decisions that aren't necessarily going to be right 10 minutes after you made them or the next day or the next hour. You've got to have enough confidence to sit there and say, nope, that wasn't the right decision. We're going to turn this way. We're going to turn that way and go do all of those things. There's a tremendous amount of, of this empowerment portion of this from a leadership side. It's really critical to, to, to sort of set those objectives that you need to accomplish in this crisis incident. You let your folks come up with a plan, hold people accountable, and you let them go to work. Yeah, I appreciate you creating that baseline for us in this episode. And I think some of what you're describing, a lot of our listeners would put under the umbrella of leader's intent, which resonates very deeply with the, the listeners. Yeah, I think that leader's intent is a really critical portion of this. One of the things that you learn over time in all this is you really learn the difference between leadership and management. And in a crisis situation, there's way more leadership than management. You've got to let your managers manage when you've got to. Excellent. I'd like to flush that out some more because I'm assuming that you navigate an array of sometimes daunting administrative tasks as well as complex political landscapes. So how do you embrace the opportunity to lead and serve in a position where you shape, influence, and implement policies of consequence in terms of operational actions, but all while operating within the confines of the political arena that's our nation's federal government. Yeah, so I think, Patty, the first important part of that is my job is a privilege. Every day, it's a privilege to come to work. 
I work with absolutely amazing folks that come to work every day trying to figure out how they can help people. But it's more than just that. The FEMA mission state, uh, the FEMA mission statement, excuse me, is to help people before, during, and after disasters. And that's a really simple mission statement, but it's really important for two reasons. Number one is every single person at FEMA can see themselves in that mission statement. And that talks about how, what we do, and it talks about how people see themselves in their role at FEMA. Number two, which is really almost the same thing that I just added in number one, is that that mission statement hasn't changed in years. It was the mission statement from the previous administration. It's the current mission statement for this administration. And that, that shows you the continuity and the consistency of what we do at FEMA. So while the political landscape definitely changes and there are different priorities and we adjust the priorities, that's what we do. We all know that at our core, at our heart, we're here to help people before, during, and after disasters. And that doesn't change. And that foundational goal, that foundation is what we do. And that really helps us do a ton of that navigation. You might have already answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, in case there's more insight that we can sort of dissect here, which is how do you balance carrying out and supporting a mission in a challenging operational environment with stakeholders who don't necessarily treat it as such, or those who lack operational experience to support their positions on policy, resource employment, or risk tolerance? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I've been incredibly lucky to work with the team, with a, the team here that's a team right now that's built really on trust and communications. We have all worked together for years and years and years. And one of the, the nice things about being a part of FEMA is the world of emergency management is pretty small. And oftentimes our political appointees, when they come in, we know them. And if we don't know them, we're maybe one or two degrees of separation from them. So we know people that they know. And that allows us to start with a basis of trust. And it starts with, allows us to, to continue to work through that trust. And as we do the operational side of this, we build trust over every, uh, every operation that we do so that the trust keeps building for, the trust keeps building amongst the political team and the career team and really the whole FEMA team writ large. And that's really important because a lot of the questions you talk about that operational environment with stakeholders, our stakeholders are everybody from the White House to other federal agencies, to state partners, to local partners, to tribes, to territories, to communities, to individuals. And that trust that we build in each leg of that and each part of that very many-legged tool uh, really helps build that overarching trust that we build and gives the nation the confidence that FEMA is there to help, that FEMA is there to make a difference and to really help people. But your question about that balancing, the balancing is, is just really hard. It's just, it's a part of what we do every day, balancing various risks, balancing operational risks that we need to balance just to make sure that we are meeting all the expectations of the, of not just of meeting all the expectations of the nation and our fellow citizens. And there's just a lot of work that gets done to build those relationships and to 
really focus on what's important. And I think that's a lot of what that trust, that confidence does. It allows for us to really focus on what's important during the operation. And the last thing that I'll say is that there's way too much to do. I mean, there's just way too much work to do. And one of the critical parts of being a boss in at FEMA and in my role specifically, there's way more work that I could ever do. And there's some work that I just don't like to do. And that's why I have a deputy. And the beauty of having a deputy is you give the deputy the job that you don't necessarily want to do and you focus on things. I know for a fact that that answer definitely deeply resonates with our listeners. And it's very scalable and transferable. So thank you for all of those insights. What are the conditions and criteria that you rely on to determine the scope and scale of resources that will be allocated to a particular disaster or emergency? Because I'm assuming that unlike fire and emergency operations at the municipal level, there's not a universal response matrix, but rather a myriad of variables that determine the federal government's response. So I would tell you, Patty, that while we don't necessarily have a really great matrix where your first alarm gets, you know, three engines, two trucks, and less than a couple of chiefs, and your second gets more and we back that whole thing up to multiple alarm fires, we still sort of do have a matrix of how we do business. And we look at that through uh, lifelines. So we focus on, we have eight different lifelines that look at things from safety and security, to health and medical, to power, to water, to food and shelter. So we take a look at all of the potential impacts uh, or the potential impacts of what could happen based upon the storm for a notice event. And then we sort of adjust the resources that we need to send them. So that means we send a bunch of, we determine based upon uh, what we think could be the impacts, we determine how many people we send on the ground. We look at how many search and rescue teams do we need to send? Uh, how much food and water do we need to move? How many incident management teams do we need there to send down there as well? So we have, uh, while it's not a traditional matrix, we have some lifelines to guide our resource decisions that we, we want to be able to do. The other thing that I would tell you is that during, a, during any operation, we focus on four really major priorities that we do for any operation that we do. The first one is to gain and maintain situational awareness. It's really critical for us to get a sense of what's going on on the ground so that we can decide what resources we need to be able to do. Number two is we got to establish unified coordination. Crisis management that we talked about earlier on and here when we talk about the, the, the what goes on for large-scale incidents it's really important to have that unified command where everybody is working off the same objectives. Everybody is working off the same goals and expectations and understanding what we're trying to accomplish. And that's everybody from the local level to the state to the feds. And our job at FEMA is to bring all of the federal agencies together to really form that unified coordination. So it's usually us in the state and we bring all those folks together to be able to meet those objectives that we need to provide life-saving and life-sustaining resources. So the first one is gaining and maintaining situational awareness. It's establishing unified coordination. It's delivering and allocating those resources. We never are gonna have enough resources. So we always wanna make sure that we have figured out the right way to allocate them and to deliver them where they are needed the most. And then the last one is the, is the unified messaging. We wanna make sure that the message that we're sending uh, throughout the incident is unified and correct. It's really important for all of us to be sharing the same information so the public 
hears the, the, the right information from the right people at the right time. So on that note, you've painted a very vivid picture for us, but I would like to humanize operational complexity from your vantage point as an executive leader. What does complexity really look and, and more importantly feel like from your vantage point and what insight and guidance do you have for those leaders who listen to the podcast who might eventually find themselves leading in equally complex environments? Sure. So I can tell you exactly what operational complexity feels like and seems like. It's an island of 3 million people getting hit by a Cat 5 storm with no power. When you're down, and this, is, this was our experience in Maria here, uh, in 2017, where Puerto Rico had no power. You have 3 million folks after a catastrophic weather event. There were a lot of partner agencies there trying to help, and we were trying to prioritize and put together really a, a plan of action of how we were going to provide life-saving and life-sustaining resources. And the feeling of it is, the, the humanizing aspect of this is as you are driving into the command post, and our portion, our, our part of this was, we were doing it at the convention center in San Juan, where you're driving down uh, these major streets in San Juan, and there are roofs collapse and buildings collapse and trees down and, and no power, no traffic lights, people sleeping on the streets as you are driving to uh, the command post to start trying to figure out how to get these folks assistance, how to get those folks help. And that help is everything from sheltering, to food, to water, to life-saving. And the critical part of all that was how do you start taking all of what you're seeing, that, op that complexity that you're visualizing with your eyes, that you're seeing as there are hundreds and hundreds of people coming together to work to try to alleviate the suffering of our fellow citizens, how do you prioritize those things? How do you balance the needs of what you see and what you know versus what you don't see and you also know, but what you think is going to happen to all those things? So that complexity aspect of it all was really challenging, but what it helped us do is it, it forced me to take a step back and say, okay, I know that we have uh, an island of 3 million people with no power. What are the priorities going to be? And that's where you work with, in my case, we work very closely with the governor to understand what his priorities were. And then we we started building the plan and started delivering the resources. We started doing those four things, gaining situational awareness. Our first focus was on how do we get power to medical facilities and gaining some situational awareness, what medical facilities needed power. We needed to start thinking about unified coordination, making sure that we were sitting there right next to the Puerto Rican government and the Department of Health to identify those places and to figure out what they needed, those resources. Was it generators they needed or fuel that they needed? Did they need to repair the generators? Did they need to repair their fuel pumps? All those things, the messaging. How do we message everybody that this is where we're focusing on? And if you need assistance, life-saving, do the following things. So what I will tell you is that humanizing aspect of this was really balancing those priorities that we needed to do. There was some hard decisions that we had to make in, in Puerto Rico about picking winners and losers, to be honest with you. We had a finite amount of fuel, we had a finite amount of fuel pumps, and we had to decide, do we send them to hospitals, do we send them to supermarkets, do we send them to police stations, dialysis centers, fire stations, where do we send them? 
those were the decisions we had to make collectively to make decisions. And and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. We, we that involves picking winners and losers, and that's a really that talk about humanizing this thing. You have to do this. So when you think about it from from our perspective and from my perspective specifically, you're making decisions that have real impacts on people, but you're also making decisions that have real impacts on the operations. And I'll give you a quick example of that in the Virgin Islands. Most of the St. John and St. Thomas were without power after Ermit. So we were we needed to provide some food and water for the citizens in St. John and St. Thomas. And at the same point, we needed some, we needed to help move some search and rescue assets into the Virgin Islands to do some search and rescue for folks that were uh, that that were in areas that hadn't been searched yet. And we had a finite amount of helicopters. And we had to decide, do we send helicopters to deliver food and water, or do we send helicopters to move the search and rescue assets? And that's not a decision that anybody wants to make because you just have to figure out which, where do you want to spend your very valuable treasure in helping people knowing that other people may not get the help they need. And that decision had to get made. And I made the decision that we're going to send those helicopters full of food and water and drop them in St. John and then St. Thomas to feed the folks that we knew need food and water. And at that point, I had just left a couple of deployments with the urban search and rescue points, and I knew them all. And they were calling me saying, hey, we need this. And I'm explaining to them, we've got to make some really difficult trade-off decisions. And that really was a, uh, that was humanizing that event to me in a big way. I want to cover USAR more in a moment, but also acknowledge that those all sound like such intense scenarios, both personally and professionally. Were there any other particular instances or operations where in your role as a leader with FEMA that you were particularly uncomfortable? And what did you learn about yourself more broadly, perhaps about leadership from this experience? Yeah, so that was a, that was a seminal moment in my leadership development uh, in the Virgin Islands for Irma and in Maria for Puerto Rico. And it was, uh, it was, particularly uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. One is that was my first really big disaster. I was the acting regional administrator in region two. I'd been to a bunch of hurricanes before, but I had never been the person that people were looking to to provide sort of that calmness in, a, in that crisis environment. But also this was the first time that I was putting people that worked for me in harm's way which is not something that we do all that often in FEMA. And it's not something that I have had to do as in, in my previous professional life, whether in the Navy or anywhere else. So it was really uncomfortable knowing that I had folks that worked for me that I was responsible for, that I was putting them in the path of a, of a catastrophic weather event. So that was the first part of what made it really uncomfortable. The second part that was really uncomfortable was we just had a massive time distance problem. And you realize that the help that I needed to provide was not going to be nearly as quick and as fast as I want. I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to get some resources. But those resources could be days away because of the challenge of getting to those islands from the mainland. So that time distance problem was, was really challenging. And then we had communications problems where I could, couldn't could really communicate with the folks that were forward deployed in the Virgin Islands that had gone through the storm, 
but there was a ton of communication for me back up to DC and back up to New York City, but just not for me to go down to the folks. So you're in a little bit of a communication blackout, which is also a really uncomfortable position to, to be in. So the experience out there was just was that first understanding of holy cow, this thing is really big. It's really complex. And I've got to make sure that I can take a step back and get myself uh, in the right space to be able to lead during this. And this is where you learn that difference between management and leadership to be able to sit there and set the conditions and set the objective and let the folks go do the work that they need to do. And that was that was just earned. And then it got really complicated when Maria hit Puerto Rico and you added that whole challenge of an island with three million people to those ongoing operations brought that side. So what I would say that I learned about this was I learned a lot about the things we first talked about, about empowering people, the difference between leadership and management. We learned a lot about making sure that you are setting good objectives, being calm, set a culture of trust, set objectives, hold people accountable, all that stuff. The other part of it, though, is you have to understand you're going to make incremental progress. Progress isn't going to be as fast as you want. Things happen way slower in a crisis than you want them to be. And by the time as a boss, you the, the problem has come to you, it's a real problem because we really want to solve things at the lowest possible level. But by the time they come to us, it can be a really real problem. So you've got to understand that it's going to be, you're going to make incremental progress in solving them. And then you also have to make sure that you've got to get really good at delegating. And you've got to get really good at being able to move, direct, delegate, and constantly adjust to whatever the conditions on the ground are. The conditions on the ground are going to change 10 times in 10 minutes. And you have to get comfortable with that. There's a phrase that I use fairly often when you're deployed out in the field where you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that really is a lot about this crisis leadership and this crisis operations. Yeah, that mantra definitely resonates. So naturally, I want to discuss risk and resilience with you. What are some of the strategies and practices that you employ to mitigate it, meaning risk, proactively? Oh, that's a that's a great question. And this one, I think, is uh, this is where the, the leadership under fire and the FEMA linkage is right there. I learned this as a volunteer fireman outside of Annapolis, Maryland, uh, years ago, which is always, you can always send people home. You, it's much easier to send them home than it is to call them when you need them. So we always want to send more than less. We want to send more resources that we need because we want to make sure that we are going to never be late to need and make sure that it's easier to send resources home, whether it's it's USAR teams, disaster medical assistance teams, truckloads of food and water, people, communications capabilities, all those things. Get them all there. If you don't need them, send them home. It's much easier to do that than it is to want them to be there. The second one is you got to plan for uncertainty. We do a lot of thinking about this disaster is just like the last disaster. And I don't necessarily know if that's the right way to think about things. So we try to think about things in a different way and plan a little bit more for the uncertainty. We know what happened last time. What happens if this happens? What happens if we think about it in a different way? What if the storm hit here as opposed to here? What if power was out on this side of a city that had more hospitals than this side of it? So you got to plan for uncertainty 
and get comfortable understanding that there's a lot that we don't know. And that's where you have to sort of almost balance your experience, your gut, and the data. And all of those things come into that uncertainty side where you got to figure out what do I need to send? What do I need to do? Another leadership under fire tie-in that I want to discuss is this question of what happens when you play to win and lose. How do you make sense of decisions that have to be made that won't make everyone happy or more accurately safe? Yeah, that's a that's a challenge. We don't own that decision of winners and losers. That gets picked every day by at the local level, like cities and states on a regular basis. But for us here at FEMA, at the national level, we try to have a basis for every one of those decisions. We try to really think through what the criteria is that we're going to use to make those decisions that there are limited resources available. How are we going to allocate them? Because we owe an answer not just to the folks that are going to get those limited resources, the winners, so to speak, but the folks that aren't going to get them, the, the non-winners, but the non-winners, um, what they're going to get. So we need to make sure that we are building those processes that are scalable, they're repeatable, and they're, they're, they're defensible. And then we've got to be able to communicate that as well because there's a, there's a lot that has to be done and those decisions are going to be made and people are going to question them. They question them every single day when we make them. But if we have a process and we have a, a, a valid process and use good data to make those decisions and it's defensible and we communicate that, they may not agree with it, but they'll recognize that we have to make those decisions. So that's, that's, I think, a big part of it. And then how do we get that information? A lot of that is, is you got to get some of that. You got to get a lot of that information from the folks on the ground. This is where that information that flows up is really critical to, to make to form the data that informs all those decisions. I want to circle back to USAR. You presently manage the U.S. government's Urban Search and Rescue Response Program. FDMY Chief Ray Downey was one of the program plank owners, and his son. Chief Joe Downey continues to serve in a prominent role. So as a native New Yorker, what does it mean to you professionally and personally to manage the USAR program that is one of Ray Downey's greatest legacies? The USAR program is far and away the best part of my job. I love every piece and part of it and member of it. It is without a doubt the best part of my job. And dealing with Joe Downey is great. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I learned something. Every time I talk to him, I look forward to every engagement I have with Joe. It really is the best part of my job because I surround myself with the USAR program folks who are just, uh, who are just, they're just the best and they're the best that America has to offer. In our time of need in FEMA, we call these guys to do all sorts of things and we could not be nearly as successful without them. All that being said is, as a kid, I grew up, like I said, right outside of your city. All I wanted to do when I grew up was be the captain of the school. That was my overarching job that I wanted when I when I grew up. I was like, I want to be the captain of SGM. I almost left the Naval Academy to become a fireman in Mount Vernon, New York. I took the test at one point when I was younger for the, the fire department. Uh, I was a longtime volunteer fireman here in Maryland. I love the fire. It has informed who I am as a person. 
as a responder, as a leader in so many different ways. And my ability to work with them through the USAR program uh, is just fantastic. I learn from them every day. It's the best part of my job. And I, would, I wouldn't change any part of that. When we talk about what else it means for me in FEMA with the USAR program, I have a couple of goals. I think that when we talked early on in the early questions about what a privilege it is to work here, the other portion of this is I'm only temporary in this job in FEMA response. I'm only going to be here for a certain amount of time, whether in, in, you measure that in, in, in years, single digits years, you don't measure it in, in double digit years. And part of my job and my tenure in here is to leave FEMA response better than. For me, that means having a couple of priorities that I want to do while I'm here in the job. And one of them is the search and rescue programs. My goal is to get some more resources to, to, help the, to help the program build more capability, more capacity, and to make it a much make it a partnership where the federal government is providing more and more to our state and local partners to allow them to build capacity at the local level, but also to be there when the nation needs them the most. As for Ray, I never got a chance to meet Ray Downey. Obviously, I never said Joe. Um, the USAR program is made up of a lot of folks that have been in the program really since its inception. And many of them know Ray and some of the leaders that we've had in the program, like Fred Endercat and Dean Scott and Joe Downey, have been a part of the program since day one. And they, are, they were close personal friends with Ray. And to hear the, their stories of Ray and the impact that he's had in the program. And every time they go to strategic group meetings, the chiefs get together, you can hear this almost unsaid, unspoken feeling of, is Ray comfortable with where we're taking this place? And I read a book many years ago, I can't remember which one it was, uh, about the New York City Fire Department. There was a quote from Ray, I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher it because I don't really remember it, but it's the, the spirit of it that I that, that I think with me, which was firemen don't run, they walk because they bring calm to that chaos. And that's something that I've really taken to heart. And I try to imbue that with the folks here in FEMA and all the other jobs that I've had, which is our goal here is to bring some calmness to some really chaotic. I love that. And I also love your perspective on stewardship in terms of leadership, because we're all part of something bigger than ourselves. And we want to contribute in our organizations in a way that is successful, but also sustainable. So that's a really great leadership perspective, too. So thank you for that. As we begin to wrap up, I just want to timestamp this episode we're having a conversation in the early part of November, 2023. So since the COVID pandemic outbreak, it feels like the world has changed in ways that we couldn't have anticipated and that FEMA and the National USAR program are even more important than they were prior to the pandemic. When you think about the future, what emerging threats do you think require our intellectual attention now both at the strategic federal level, but also at the municipal level? That's a great question. Patty, we're, we're constantly thinking about where, what's the next threat that's going to come out of the way. 
we're pretty good at natural disasters. We have been working pretty consistently since 2017 on floods, on hurricanes, and tornadoes, and fires, the way we handle national nationalization, we are unfortunately good at it because we've had a tremendous amount of practice. When we think about emerging threats, though, that's where it gets really challenging and really difficult because we've got to start thinking about things that we just haven't thought about in the past. And there are two, two threats that I think are most important for us that I think are ones where we have a shared threat responsibility with our partners at the the local level, the state level, the tribes, the country. The first one is just climate change and how we are handling storms that are bigger and more powerful. And there's no real hurricane season anymore. We get the tornado season starts on January 1st, basically, and ends on 31 December. We have hurricanes and, and winter weather for 10 months out of a year, wildfires all the time. So this climate change construct, we're seeing bigger and bigger disasters that requires everybody in the world of emergency management to think through what this new normal looks like. The second one, which I think is going to be even a little bit more challenging, is the nation state threat and how we are handling the threat of nation state actors. We spent a tremendous amount of time and treasure post-September 11th looking at the non-state actors and the federalist threat, and that is still there and it's still real and we still make a lot of investments for that. We now need to add that nation state side of whether it's what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and the impact that that has both in Europe, but also potentially in, in Europe with our allies. Same thing we look at the, the Pacific Ocean with China and Taiwan and our and our requirements towards China, Taiwan. And now you've got the Israeli Hamas war that is going on there as well with, with the threat of that Iran is playing in that as well. So all of this nation state threat is stuff that is coming to us. And the scenarios of the nation state threat are everything from sabotage to cyber, all the way up to, to really the, you know, the biggest worries that we've got. But a lot of those initial scenarios are going to happen at the local level. And they're gonna, they're gonna happen at the state level. And sometimes they're gonna happen before we at the federal level even know them. So handling cyber events, handling having power outages and cyber attacks at the local level are something that we've got to be thinking through and prepared for today. And this whole of government response, how do we stay ready and prepared to respond to a full spectrum of energies, of emergencies? Those are, that full spectrum is changed with the nation state. We, we used to be we were worried about a kind of power plant going out. Now we're worried about a cyber attack that takes out a Con Ed power plant or the 911 dispatch system or the power generation of something or all of the uh, all of the, the, the wastewater systems or a SCADA attack somewhere. So that full spectrum of emergencies are going to hit, impact the entire nation. So that whole of government preparedness, that whole of government response is really going to be critical. So that's where I think from an emergency management perspective, we've all seen how these complex incidents can span multiple domains and multiple agencies at the same time. We need to be prepared to react and adapt in spite of those complexities. And that's gonna, that's gonna impact every one of the Leadership Under Fire partners and participants and members and organizations 
because chances are the local fire department, police department is going to be responding to all these things before we even realize what they want. That is the part that is most concerning to me is that nation state threat is going to hit the, that the nation state threat is is going to have impacts across the entire whole of nation. Yes, and bringing it back to the individual level, it's so important to protect that cognitive bandwidth that we have in terms of preparedness, regardless of where you are in rank or position, right? You need to be able right. to think and, and operate. And to do that, you have to give attention to these things. And if you don't make space for them, you know, that's going to have consequences. That's right. That's where you've got to carve out that space to think, that carve out that space to plan, and carve out that space to just get a sense of, and to imagine, really, to imagine some terrible worst-case scenarios. Yeah, and again, it can be done, you know, at the individual level, which leads me to my final question for you. Your former boss at DHS, retired U.S. Marine Corps four-star General John Kelly, would commonly remind his fellow Marine general officers to rhetorically ask, what does this mean for the Lance Corporal on the ground when making strategic decisions regarding policy? So it seems that despite all the responsibility that you have as an executive, that you have continued to maintain a deep appreciation for first responders at the tactical level. How do you maintain self-awareness and unwavering, I would say, admiration for those who are out there doing the dangerous and dirty work. Uh, simple, Patty, get out there. Get out to the field. I talk to people all the time here at FEMA, you know, what's your recommendation for how do I how do I get more experience with FEMA? How do I get promoted? How do I do anything? My answer to every question is get out to the field. Get out there, go out there and do the work that we do. Meet survivors, provide assistance, go out there in the field and see how FEMA does its work. There is no better experience than going out there and seeing the folks being on the ground, getting close to problems so you can help solve them better. Uh, that's a critical part. And I'll tell you, Patty, I got back this summer. This summer, I went out to Maui soon after the wildfire. Right? We sent, uh, when all said and done, I think we sent four urban central rescue teams out there. We sent a bunch of human remains dogs out there. We sent some of the guys from New York to go out there. And I was out there for about a week with the with the team, just being there to support them and watch them do their work. And it was awesome. It was fantastic to see them. It was fantastic to see the positive work that they were doing, not just helping to do the searching and identifying the remains and providing closure to our fellow citizens in Maui, but to seeing the way they interacted with the Maui Fire Department, the Maui Police Department, and the state and the locals, the, the local citizens there, knowing that they were such great representatives of their departments of FEMA to help those folks was just fantastic. And I came back motivated. I came back excited about my job. And I came back ready to go back to work. Because being out there, it grounded me, but it reminded me of why I do this. It reminded me of why we in response do this. That reminded me why we in community do this. And that is only because you go out there and you see it in the field. 
this conversation has definitely reinvigorated me. So thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and experience and being so generous with your insight. Well, I'm happy to do it, Patty. You, you hit on a lot of the things that I care about. Leadership, taking care of people and your organizations and recognizing you're here leaving organizations better than you found them. And of course, the Urban Search and Rescue Program. Three of my favorite things to talk about. Excellent. Well, thank you for the, taking the time to speak with me today. And I'm sure we'll have you on again at another time. Thanks. It was truly a pleasure, Patty. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.